Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this passage as you've helped us so evidently over the previous weeks. Lord, we do delight that you are speaking to us as a church and that you are uh, helping us to know you more and know uh, the battle that you've called us to more clearly. But Lord, we believe there is more for us to learn, more for us to understand, that uh, we may be better equipped to serve you in this, your world. So we pray this morning that you would open our eyes, help us to see, open our hearts, help us to uh, uh, sense your presence. And Lord, strengthen our wills as we are sent out from here at the end of our time to serve you in the, in the world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. actually to start by talking uh, uh, to you about uh, the prevalence of conspiracy theories. I don't know whether you've, uh, you've noticed it. It seems to me they're very, very common, especially in films. So many films it, it come out these days which uh, portray some, some mysterious hidden power that most people are unaware of that seems to be pulling the strings behind the scenes. I mean, one of the, the, uh, the classics recently was this, the pseudo-documentary, um, JFK, Oliver Stone's uh, film. It built on the shock that uh, went around the world about uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination and uh, certain rumours and uh, slight inconsistencies in the story were enough for the, the whole film to build a... a a picture of uh, uh, secrets and uh, various mysterious organizations that uh, uh, ultimately assassinated John Kennedy. People love that sort of thing. It really stimulates their imaginations. And uh, if you go and see the, the film The Matrix, I gather, you will get uh, your mind uh, bent even more about whether the real world that we're looking at is the uh, all that there is. Why, why are people so fascinated with that? Why do people love conspiracy theories uh, so much? Of course, a lot of people would, would say, well, it's just pure fantasy. Uh, people uh, love to make up uh, fantastical stories about this world to, to give themselves a, a frisson of fear. But I want to suggest to you that there might be another reason. See, I suspect that it stems from a, a very common observation that we live in a world that is ultimately mysterious and unpredictable, where things that are impossible to fathom happen. It's like, like wading out into, into a calm sea and discovering as we, as we walk out that there's an incredibly strong undertow grabbing at our legs and pulling us. So uh, many people's experience in the world is that they feel a pull that they can't quite put their finger on, but which seems to be wanting to drag them to destruction. See, a major aim of the book of Revelation, and actually, I think, in a sense, the whole Bible, is to explain what that undertow is. 
Since uh, chapter 6 of uh, Revelation itself, John has been revealing to us uh, more and more clearly how the world really works, what's really going on in the world. And he described uh, what he saw in terms of, uh, first of all, of a scroll, remember, with seven seals that were progressively uh, broken as history since the time of Christ unfolds. And we saw that uh, he, he says very clearly the world is a mess, but then assures us as well that Christians are secure. There was the picture of 144,000 uh, uh, saved people, wasn't there? A perfect number, a perfect army of the people of God. And then we saw that there were seven uh, trumpets, seven great warnings from God about what is really going on in this world. And we started to see a little bit more clearly, not only is the world a mess, but there is one personality behind that mess, the devil. As uh, progressive trumpets were sounded, we saw more and more clearly that the forces that have been unleashed in this world are under the control of the devil. So we're now, by the uh, time we get to the beginning of uh, chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, we're now into this rhythm of sevens, aren't we? Seven seals followed by seven trumpets. Now, uh, surely, if it's not all going to come to an end, there's going to be another set of seven. Unfortunately, we don't get that. We actually... Uh, uh, at the beginning of, from the beginning of chapter 12 to the beginning of chapter 15, have uh, a long break in this pattern of sevens. John will come back to his pattern of sevens once again when, uh, when it suits him. There will be the seven last plagues, which we'll see the next time we uh, come to Revelation. But uh, this section that we've got to study serves as an interlude in uh, what he's telling us. This week, he's going to say that uh, uh, we could describe, we could see the whole of history in terms of uh, things progressively unfolding, but we could step back and look at history from another perspective. We could say that the whole of history now, since the time of Christ and before he comes again, is in fact the outplay of, of the four major characters performing their particular drama. Some people have suggested that it is divided into seven, uh, this section, and you'll see on the, uh, the sermon notes that we have seven sections that we're going to give different weight to, to each of those. Seven separate visions. That may be the case, but John doesn't make it quite so clear here as he does elsewhere with, the, with his other sets of sevens. Now, he wants us to focus more on the first four of his, uh, his, his pictures, his tableaus that he gives us. And each of those focuses on one particular character, one personality, you could say. So that's what we're going to spend most of our time looking at, these four characters who perform in a great drama. And the outcome of that drama determines the outcome of history. Chapter 12 is all one vision. And chapter 12 focuses around a dragon. 
In fact, the first person who is seen is a woman, isn't it? A great and wondrous sign, chapter 12, verse 1, appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. This woman represents the people of God. Way back in, in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph had had a dream uh, which portrayed Jacob and uh, his 12 sons, who were the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, in terms of the sun, the moon, and 12 stars. So um, uh, it became popular in, uh, in Jewish thought to see the faithful people of God as like this constellation of heavenly bodies. Also, as well, the, the, the people of God were waiting for their great Messiah. And several times in Old Testament prophecies, that, that anticipation is, is described in terms of Israel, the people of God, being in the labor of childbirth before she gives birth to the great Messiah. So this woman is in childbirth. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And at that point, she is confronted by this major character, the Red Dragon. It's not the mascot of the Welsh rugby team, I assure you. Now, this, this uh, creature is far, far more terrible than that. He is enormous, says John. He has seven heads. He has ten horns, symbolizing strength. Seven crowns, symbolizing authority. He demonstrates his power in front of this woman by, by sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky. And then he stands waiting to devour this woman's child. Of course, the child is Jesus. And God will not let this, his own son, be harmed. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. That single verse, chapter 12, verse 5, describes the whole life and ministry of Jesus. All the, the, the hopes of the people of God had become focused on one pregnant woman, Mary. And she gave birth to Jesus. Jesus uh, was attacked by that dragon, the devil. But God wouldn't let him stay dead when he died on the cross. God raised him to life. God uh, took him to be with him so that he ascended to the right hand of God. God protected his own son. This dragon has very real power. Then. And then when he has lost the battle against Jesus, he turns that power and that venom on the people of God. There is war, first of all, between uh, Michael, who's the chief of the good angels, and uh, this dragon. And uh, the dragon loses his place, verses 7 and 8. He's not strong enough. That happened during the ministry of Jesus. We, saw in the, we see in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus himself says, I saw Satan fall like lightning when he's won some particular battles over the, uh, the forces of evil. 
The devil has been displaced, but he hasn't lost all his power yet. This is a decisive victory which has not yet been brought to its completion. And on the contrary, the devil is even more venomous, even more ferocious, says John. He will reap all the havoc that he can until the last breath is squeezed out of him. Only by repeated miracles, says John, can God's people be preserved from the venom of the devil who has been defeated. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of an eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she might be taken care of for a time, times, and and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's the first and most formidable character in this great drama which is world history now. The devil is down here with us, says John. And he is all the more ferocious precisely because he is beaten. Absolutely vital that we realize the terrifying power of of the devil. We've already seen that as we've been going through uh, uh, this revelation, haven't we? His malevolence. But now John says uh, something he hasn't quite said before. He says that his malevolence is primarily directed against the church. His hostility is supremely against the people of God because they represent for him the people who have defeated him. The people, in fact, who are under the the sovereignty, the lordship of his great opponent, God and Jesus Christ. And he is absolutely desperate. He is like a cornered rat. I don't know how many people here have got experience of rats. And on the farm where I grew up, we used to have rat hunts quite regularly. They were part of the annual rhythm of life. And you learn to respect them, you know. We had a dog once who didn't take rats very seriously on the annual rat hunt, and she was an absolute liability. She would chase after these rats, and she would get them, and she would throw them up in the air, and of course they'd fly through the air and then run off and escape. But there was one day when she cornered a rat, that rat went for her and gave her a savage bite on the nose. Now, after that day, that dog was a different dog. She was absolutely focused on killing every rat as soon as she could see it. The trouble is, you see, I, I fear that far too many Christians are just as stupid as that dog was. It's what I worry about so often in the church. They think, people think 
that there's security as Christians, the assurance and the joy that uh, they are called to have as Christians stems from the fact that the, the devil's really just a teddy bear and not to be worried about at all. We don't realize that our joy, that the assurance of Christians stems from the fact that despite the devil's dragon-like power, God is more powerful. When people don't take the devil uh, seriously, you see them uh, playing at Christianity. You see them only half concentrating on it, just like our dog. And I look at such people and I think, they're going to get bitten. They're going to get hurt. If you're a Christian here, remember, Satan can still hurt you. Very, very important that we remember that. He can ruin your marriage. He can destroy your integrity. He can damage your confidence in God. He cannot pluck you from God's grasp, but he can do an awful lot to make your life miserable in the meantime. And most especially, what he focuses on, what he concentrates on, is compromising our witness. Because if he can make people who are not yet in God's grasp think that Christians are hypocrites, think that Christians are not worth listening to, then he has won a great battle. He may not have won the war, but he is a ferocious opponent. It is wise for Christians to learn a bit of focus like our dog did and make sure that we eliminate his opposition whenever we see it. Take the devil seriously. The people who are protected are people, as John says, who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. People who are obedient to God. People who are faithful in bearing witness to God. You know, I learned uh, very early on in my rugby playing career that the people who get hurt the most are the people who are not really playing in a committed way. If you tackle someone as you're supposed to with absolute conviction, you are not likely to get hurt. If you don't and turn to the side or are slightly afraid, you will be hurt in a rugby match. Well, in this... uh, this great battle that we have. It is easy to become a casualty if we are not committed to Jesus Christ, if we are not committed to obeying God's commands, if we are not committed to proclaiming the gospel. Take him seriously, though he is a defeated opponent. He still wages war. Which brings us, in fact, to the second character who is uh, related to the first character in the first half of uh, chapter 13. This character on the stage of human history is visible, not invisible as the dragon is, the, the devil. He is the beast out of the sea, chapter 13. 
The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowds on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. John, John's actually making use of complex images to describe this beast. In uh, verse 2, he uses images from the book of Daniel, in fact, who, where Daniel described four great superpowers that would come after his day. But in John's vision, all the attributes of those superpowers are bound up in one great beast, as if he is saying, this beast out of the sea is any form of idolatrous totalitarian government that you choose to, to think about. This beast uses its uh, a power to claim godlike status. It has blasphemous names on each of its head. And it seems to be immortal. One of its heads has been uh, uh, fatally wounded, but that wound has healed. Actually, in John's day, you see, both of those elements of description could apply very clearly to the Roman Empire. The Roman emperors were starting in John's day to require worship. They uh, said that uh, to the people, they were a god. People could worship any other god they liked as long as they also worshipped the emperor as a god. And also in John's day, there was a, a popular um, uh, belief that the, the long-dead emperor Nero would rise from the dead again. He held uh, such, a, such a, a place in their, in their fascination that they were sure he would come alive again and rule again. So one of these uh, heads has been mortally wounded but, uh, but has healed. Whether in fact John's actually uh, uh, using the, the, uh, each of the seven heads to signify one of the Roman emperors of, uh, uh, of his day is not quite clear because commentators who try to pin that down do find it very difficult to do. But we, can, uh, we need not worry about that too much. The key thing is he is saying that uh, he was living in a day when there was a terrible blasphemous superpower who seemed to be immortal. And this uh, uh, superpower oppresses people, but impresses them as well. John says, actually, that the whole world followed the, uh, the beast, not God's people, but everyone else followed this beast. And as they, they follow him, they find uh, uh, this, this uh, irresistible urge to go further than following him, to worship him who has blasphemous names on his head and worship the dragon as well who gives him power. The second uh, beast then, if the first beast is, 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 is um, idolatrous, 
political power. The second beast is very closely related to that. It's described here as the beast out of the earth. Verse 11, I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. This is the first beast cheerleader, isn't it? Now, one commentator has described him as the public relations manager of the beast out of the sea. He's the archetypal spin doctor, isn't he? He looks like a lamb. In other words, there's something a little Christ-like in this figure. But when he speaks, he speaks words straight from the devil. And he can do miracles on behalf of this first beast so that people are deceived. He organizes the, the setting up of an image of the first beast so that people, uh, people can worship him. Indeed, that image becomes animated. Now, the beast out of the sea then does all the dirty business of wielding power itself. But the beast out of the earth seems to, to, to be uh, some prophetic figure almost. He's described as a prophet later on who uses all of that power to cause people to worship him. Actually, if you examine any authoritarian structure in the world today, you will find these two elements. They are universal. There is the powerful leader or leaders themselves who just exercise raw power, who seem apparently impregnable. And then there is some sort of popular ideology. There's some sort of personality cult. There is an image factory which is dedicated to making that powerful leader look respectable, to making people worship the that leader. Look, look at Lenin, for instance, and how Marxism was used to, to exalt Lenin. Or look at Adolf Hitler and how, how some how a nationalist uh, ideology was used to exalt Adolf Hitler. Or look at Saddam Hussein, how his country is filled with images of the great leader so that no one can go far without having him look down on them. We could examine any one of those countries, but I actually want to look at our country for a moment. I want us to look at Britain. Because, you see, John is quite clear that all political power has this undertow in a beast-like direction. There is an inevitable tendency in this world to be drawn in that direction. Now, I'm very firmly convinced of the value of democracy, but I have to say that I think there is, a, there is a naive confidence in democracy in this country sometimes. See, John's quite clear. He tells us that if the people actually, uh, under the uh, control of the beast out of the sea, had had the vote, every single one of them would have voted for him. He would have been voted into office. Some of the greatest monsters in history have, one way or another, been voted into office. People are fascinated 
by power and always tend to follow it. I don't think we realize, in fact, how much our stable democracy owes, uh, owes to the firm Christian tradition of qualified support for political leaders. Seems to me that there, there are actually real signs today that we are becoming more and more prone to follow the powerful leader simply because of his amazing power, not because he has clear, coherent policies which persuade us. We are keen to worship an image rather than to support a policy. You know, this week there was a very amusing incident when our um, Prime Minister made his opponents absolutely helpless with laughter, and even the members of his own benches uh, uh, couldn't help sniggering, when he accused the opposition leader of being uh, more interested in a good soundbite than a good policy. Everyone had a feeling that uh, this was a bit of the pot calling the kettle black. Sound bites are the order of the day today because you see, sound through sound bites, the spin doctors can give breath to an animated image of a leader which is not quite true. Isn't that frightening? Verse 15. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak. A beast is always lurking at the edge of every political power. He is waiting for his opportunities to, to subvert any political power. And there, there are two key elements that he will want to impose on a society which should make us uh, uh, take serious note. First of all, Christians will be persecuted. Verse 7. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. See, uh, this persecution usually arises as part of a general decrease in people's liberty of conscience. But when political powers start clamping down on freedom of expression, it is the Christians who find themselves at the forefront of the opposition. Because Christians always say, there is another king. There is someone else to whom we owe allegiance. And we must speak and act according to our greater allegiance to him. A healthy democracy, a healthy power will not mind that, will not be threatened by that. But it is one of the first signs of authoritarianism that that starts to become a serious threat. Christians were seen as a serious threat to Rome and were persecuted from time to time. And they have been again and again wherever legitimate political power starts to arrogate to itself powers that it should not have. And the second thing to be very wary of is related to it, and it's found uh, uh, in the beast out of the earth. The, the uh, beast out of the earth will want to uh, curtail the economic freedom of individuals. Verse 16, 
He forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and, sla uh, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number for the beast, for it is man's number. His name is 666. If anyone has insight here and knows what the number 666 is, please tell me. I'm not sure myself. But that's not the main thing that John is uh, wanting to draw out. Now the main thing is that we must be very wary of political powers that want to control our ability to trade, because if we are, if our ability to to uh, trade and transact normal normal uh, economic transactions is curtailed, then of course our power is curtailed. Our ability to live lives of freedom is curtailed. That's why I think the civil liberties organisations are right to be wary of identity cards of of centralised means of supervising. Uh, people's finances. It, it, it is important to control crime. There is a certain degree of supervision which is always necessary, but we mustn't naively think that the more power and the more control we give to central authorities, the more our, our country will be well run. Central authorities are always being dragged, quietly but powerfully, to abuse their power. And they are mere people. They will not always resist it. Actually, uh, at the moment, there are, there are less obvious ways in which economic control is being centralized. The, uh, that control actually is even out of the hands of, of government. Black Wednesday, do you remember? Proved uh, to us very clearly that in fact, multinational corporations and people with very large pots of money can even control governments in their policies. Now, we should not be alarmist. We should not be uh, uh, um, uh, shouting from the rooftops that the end is about to come and the world is about to fall apart. But we should not be naive either. We should be speaking clearly that people should have liberty to lead their lives within certain limits as they see fit. And when governments, in fact, start to curtail that, you can be certain that Christians are, will be at the forefront of receiving the brunt of that. These two beasts, then, these two other characters, visible manifestations of this hidden character in chapter 12, the dragon. They are very powerful, and the dragon uses them to oppress the people of God. But there is a fourth character. He is found in the first five uh, verses of chapter 14. The fourth character we have already seen in Revelation, he is the lamb. I looked and there before me was a lamb, standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The lamb, Jesus Christ, commands this perfect army of believers that we've seen earlier on, 144,000. They are marked 
with the Father's name and Jesus' name, not with man's name. They, uh, says John, sing a new song. We've already seen that as well. It's a song of victory, isn't it? And only they can sing it. Only they can learn it. Because only they are redeemed from the earth. Only they have victory over the dragon and the two beasts. Why? Because only for them is the prospect of death no loss. That's very important for us to see. There is power of death in the hands of the two beasts, in the hands of the dragon. Chapter 13, verse 10, warned us that people will be killed by the, uh, by the sword. And then we are told that the beast uh, out of the earth is given power to kill all who refuse to worship the image. But the hopes of God's people do not lie in this earth. They are redeemed from the earth. And so they uniquely in all this world are free. They are liberated. They cannot be destroyed because God has given them eternal life. They do not need to fear these opponents. They can live good lives. They can follow the Lamb. Nothing at all can stop them. Because even the most ferocious outpouring of diabolical power in this world will only rob them of their temporal life, not their eternal life. By and large, Christians are not called to pay the, the, the ultimate cost of their lives. But there is an incredible freedom with the fact that they do not need to be concerned about that. How does John expect us to uh, respond then as he has painted these four great uh, characters uh, working out the story of the rest of history, the dragon, the two beasts, and the lamb? How does he want us to respond? Well, let me point out two key ways that I think he wants us to respond to, uh, to this passage. First of all, it has been an implicit assumption throughout that Christians will be at the forefront of opposing bad, evil government. They don't get uh, uh, executed for nothing, though. They, they get executed because they are a pain in the neck of such governments. They will not worship the beast. Often said, isn't it, that, it, that all that is necessary for evil tri to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Well, Christians should not do nothing. They should be the voice of dissent. They should be calling governments of all sorts to account. While everyone else is amazed at the charisma of this great leader, whoever he may be, and is following him blindly, Christians are called to ask difficult questions of those in authority over us about individual liberty, about care of the weak, about freedom of worship. There are enormous scopes for people to do that today, you know. Sometimes uh, uh, it's relatively easy 
we can be involved in, in uh, uh, agitating for other governments that are far more totalitarian than our own. To, uh, uh, to be fair in the way they treat people. Sometimes it's uh, much more subtle to try to understand what we are called to do. But Christians must not, cannot ever give blind allegiance to those in authority over them. They must see those in authority as those who are put there by God, but who are being dragged with forces that are beyond their power very often to become like the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. Christians offer qualified support only to governments they are under. But actually there's another application which is more prominent in John's mind. And uh, it's found, in fact, if we look at the last three scenes, uh, which we can't do at all in in any length. But uh, John has three final scenes which are outlined on the uh, notes uh, that you should have in front of you. The first scene is found in chapter 14, verse uh, uh, 6 to 13. There, he says that one of the few things left to happen is proclamation. Everyone must hear that God has defeated his opponents. Everyone must hear that they must not worship the beast. Everyone must hear, says John, the gospel, verse 6. I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. After proclamation, says John, there are just two things left to happen. First of all, there is harvest, he says, in chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. That harvest, he says, is a time of both salvation and of judgment. And then immediately after that, he says in chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, there is God's final and total victory. And only those things remain. And only one of those three things has any involvement from the people of God. It's proclamation. It's the proclamation of the eternal gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people. God will bring the harvest. God will bring the final victory. But within this world, where these four characters are playing out their drama, Christians are called to proclaim God's victory and call people to repentance. Let me just finish by telling you a story. There was once an evil emperor who ruled a dry and inhospitable island. And amongst his enslaved people were spies for a good king who ruled across the sea on a green and pleasant island and who was planning an invasion to liberate the slaves. The spies had instructions to tell the people about the good king. 
because he knew that otherwise, when the good king came to oppose the emperor, it would not only be the emperor who got killed, but the slaves who would fight for him. The good king had warned his spies that they must face torture in the land of the emperor. But the emperor would be powerless to kill them. Finally, one day after many days, the invasion fleet appeared over the horizon and sailed straight to the dry and barren land. A mighty army set foot on the shore and a great battle ensued. Many of the slaves fought for the emperor and were killed. Finally, the good king had won his battle and all opposition was quelled. And the good king called his spies to him in the land. He asked them his question. Why did so many slaves fight to the death against me? The spokesman of the, of the spies replied, O oh, great king, we haven't told everyone about your kingdom yet. We had to be so careful and so secret and so sensitive to people's feelings. But it took longer than you told us it would. You came too soon, O great king. I didn't come too soon, came the reply. I liberated no one from the torture cells. You were not prepared to pay the price for public witness. Who should I hold responsible for these dead bodies before me? 